Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Can everybody see a presentation? Yep. Excellent. I'm just going to drag a few things around here so I can actually see what I'm doing. The problem with having more than one monitor. Uh, so I'm actually going to start with a with an explanation or maybe a, a warning. So this presentation was originally developed for an Ohio audience. Um, and I'll be quoting Ohio ritual uh, at several points. Uh, we're very careful to find what we consider a Masonic secret and what we consider monitorial or fit for public consumption. So our definitions might be a little different between our jurisdictions. So please just keep that in mind before reporting me for unmasonic conduct. Um, so the Grand Lodge of Ohio shut down in March and we were shut down for about 12 weeks. Uh, we ended up reopening in June, uh, though many lodges have since elected to remain dark for the time being. Uh, you know, we were faced with a rather monstrous unknown. Uh, we didn't know at that time at least how long we'd be shut down and we had no idea what to do in the meantime uh, this was right in the middle of our annual inspection season and i went from having a lodge event just about every day of the week to absolutely nothing literally overnight now personally i like to keep busy uh, i think it's a major reason why i'm as involved in freemasonry as i am um, and besides being a, a district deputy grand master and an officer in a half dozen other lodges and appendant bodies I've also become rather involved in virtual masonry. So I'm the inner guard of Castle Island Virtual Lodge number 190 out of the Grand Lodge of Manitoba. And I've also become a regular at Endeavor Virtual Lodge uh, number 944 out of the United Grand Lodge of Victoria. And these are currently the only two regularly chartered virtual lodges in the world, which meet entirely online with no physical presence. Uh, so as soon as the word came down that Grand Lodge of Ohio was, well, being shut down, I decided to take this experience with virtual masonry and apply it to our current predicament. Uh, now, since then, these Zoom meetings have caught on just about all over the place, but at the time, at least in Ohio, it was a really novel concept. So on Friday nights, we gathered for education programs. It was 12 straight weeks of education. Uh, I tracked down several guest speakers, but I also ended up pretty much draining my own collection of presentations and ending up or ended up pulling together entirely new ones to meet the commitment. Um, this particular presentation actually started as a talk for a table lodge that never actually happened. So the lodge canceled that event when they realized that they talked about having a table lodge for months, but no one had actually planned it. Uh, so I took the opportunity to finish the presentation. And if you hadn't guessed, the, the title of the presentation actually comes from my favorite document in the fraternity. And it's Anderson's Constitutions of the Freemasons, uh, specifically the 1723 edition. Uh, in Ohio, this is known as the Charges of a Freemasonry, or simply as the Ancient Charges. We've since adopted this document and included it as part of our Ohio Masonic Code. So that's in with our Grand Lodge Constitution, our resolutions, regulations, bylaws, and everything else. And in some ways it forms a stable pillar of Masonic law in Ohio because we can't really change its text. Uh, no one's sending a time machine back to 1723 to argue with Anderson. Though there is one section that we explicitly reinterpret. Uh, now my favorite section of this document is actually the very first section, section one, and it's concerning God and religion. And it reads, a Mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law. And if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine. And I always have to stop at this point and explain that stupid is not used as a base insult. So we're not saying that atheists are stupid doo-doo heads with rocks for brains. In the archaic root of the word stupid is the same as the word stupor. It describes someone who sees 
but doesn't perceive the world around him. You can wave your hand in front of his face and he doesn't react to the obvious. And it continues, but though in ancient times, Masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet it is now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves. That is to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denominations or persuasions they may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of conciliating true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance. So you, you begin to see the roots of our entered apprentice lecture, or at least Ohio's version. And generally, I think this is a very powerful and revolutionary thing to say. So many of those Masons living in 1723 could remember back to a time when wars or religions sharply divided England. And now we're saying that Freemasonry is a place where men of any religion can gather and enjoy each other's fellowship. That we are united by what we have in common rather than divided by how we differ. Now, in many of my other presentations, I focus more on this idea of tolerance, of coming together despite, or maybe even because of our differences. In this presentation, I wanted to explore this religion in which all men agree, or what we do all have in common. Um, this hints at a, a shared ethos among all members of the fraternity, and even across all of human civilization. So, Freemasonry certainly teaches a moral philosophy to our members, but this section hints at something that was already in place, something that we bring to the fraternity and not the other way around. Now, over the years, there's been uh, a great deal of thought and debate invested in defining a universal ethic. So this is one particular example of universal business ethics uh, came out of the Harvard Business Review. And many have suggested this applies not only to the corporate world, but also to our own personal lives. So uh, in this case, we look at the terms in the flow chart. My little laser pointer here. Uh, the term legal or legality is pretty well understood, if not hotly contested at times. But we're like shareholder. Uh, that's not just your business investors, but those who have invested in your own life, uh, your parents, your family, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, your lodge members, your pets, what have you. And following this rather simplified flowchart, some of it seems rather easy. A lot of these answers are simply do it or don't do it. And some of them are a little more difficult. So take the action, but disclose the effect of the action to its shareholders. So, this would mean something like breaking up with someone that you really do love, uh, telling a boss who appreciates you that you're quitting, uh, putting a family member in an assisted living facility, saying to someone that I'm going to do this, I'm going to take this action. This may hurt you, but I want you to understand how I came to this decision and how it may affect you personally. Now this flowchart is an attempt to grapple with the complexities of human decision-making and to distill it into a uh, rather simplified form. And unfortunately, the easier the chart is to understand, the more difficult it is to actually use. Uh, these look like simple questions on the surface, but they're actually very exhausting to grapple with personally. And this is also a, a relatively modern approach. And it's an approach that many philosophers have been pushing onto business entities. It may seem like common sense, but it's not actually all that common. And when I first read this section of the ancient charges, I was more interested in a contemporary view of universal ethics. Now, what shared values or beliefs did Anderson and the other Masonic philosophers of his day see in the human race? Uh, did they exist before then? Uh, do they still exist today? Uh, this idea of a universal ethic or shared values is actually something that many Enlightenment era philosophers were already thinking about at that time. Uh, John Locke, in particular, took a rather pessimistic view in his uh, 1689 essay concerning human understanding. And he writes, he that will carefully peruse the history of mankind and look abroad into the several tribes of men and with indifference survey their actions 
will be able to satisfy himself that there is scarce that principle of morality to be named or rule of virtue to be thought on. Those only accepted that are absolutely necessary to hold society together, which commonly too are neglected betwixt distinct societies, which is not somewhere or other slighted and condemned by the general fashion of whole societies of men, governed by practical opinions and rules of living quite opposite to others. The, the gist of this being that humanity as a whole is so diverse and so unique across all corners of the globe that any system of morality is going to be shaped by and tailored to the specific situations and surroundings in which it develops. So a system of morality that's created in England is naturally going to address English culture and English problems. Uh, one that's created in Africa is going to be shaped by Africa. One that's created in Asia is going to be tailored by Asian culture and so on and so forth. And because the world is so diverse, there's no one system of morality that could spontaneously develop across the world and be universally accepted. So a South American system of morality would be incompatible with Mid Middle Eastern culture because it wasn't designed by or for that culture. Now this is, of course, not entirely the case. Uh, there's one very famous example which most, if not all of you, will recognize. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, this is particularly burned into my brain uh, because I distinctly remember in second grade spending recess writing this again and again and again on the chalkboard when I acted out at one time or another. This golden rule has been ingrained into us as children and it actually shows up all over the world in many different religions. So America has strong Judeo-Christian influences so it's probably known to you uh, through this phrase. And uh, the most common version of this phrase that you probably encounter is actually from the book of Matthew. So it first shows up in Leviticus. It's also found in the book of Tobit, do to no one what you would, what you would yourself dislike. In Matthew, do to others what you want them to do to you. But it actually shows up in many other religions all around the world. Uh, in Islam, as you would have people do to you, do to them, and what you would dislike to be done to you, don't do to them. Uh, shows up in the Baha'i faith. It also shows up in uh, Eastern religions. So Hinduism and Buddhism are two religions focused on the concept of karma. I'll very briefly explain that good deeds or negative deeds will eventually catch up to us and likely carry over from one life into the next. Uh, interestingly, the uh, Hindu quote takes a positive approach. Uh, those acts that you would consider good when done to you, do those to others and none else. While the Buddhist example here takes more of a negative spin, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Uh, and there's actually quotes in the opposite direction in both of these religions. It also shows up in uh, Zoroastrianism, do not do unto others whatever is injurious to yourself. And uh, one of the more interesting examples I came across is actually from uh, Confucianism, so from Analects. Zigong, who's a, a young follower of Confucius acts, is there any one word that could guide a person throughout life? And the master or Con Confucius replies, how about shoe, or roughly translated into reciprocity? Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. So the, the one word that would guide a person throughout life is this concept of reciprocity. Now this continues into many ancient philosophies as well. So we'll start with uh, Thales, who's a, a mathematician and a pre-Socratic philosopher. He was actually the first to imply uh, deductive reasoning to geometry. He came up with the idea of a geometric proof. He wrote the first corollary to a geometric theorem. He's credited with the first mathematical discovery. And he simply wrote, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Next was Isocrates, uh, again, an ancient Greek orator, uh, actually founded the first academy of rhetoric. And he taught that skill in oratory was not enough to be 
a good speechwriter. Uh, one must also have a skill in philosophy, science, and the other arts to back up whatever it is that you're arguing. And he wrote, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. And then Seneca, specifically uh, Seneca the Younger, was a Roman Stoic philosopher and dramatist. Now, interestingly enough, all the plays that he wrote were tragedies. Now, he didn't write any histories or comedies. And he wrote, treat your inferior as you would wish your superior to treat you, which is uh, particularly interesting to me because this is coming from a manual on the proper care and handling of slaves. So he's actually writing, treat your slave as you would wish your master to treat you, which if he had told me that, I would say, okay, well, then free me. Uh, but I guess Roman society was not at all that simple. And yeah, interestingly enough, this shows up in our ritual. Now, again, this is Ohio ritual. Maybe California ritual is different. I don't know. In our one of our closing prayers, do unto others as you would have others do unto you and good unto all. It also shows up in our entered apprentice charge. So we have a duty to your neighbor and acting upon the square and doing unto him as you would have him do unto you. But there's actually a couple problems with a rule or a law as simple as this. Uh, the first is that social expectations differ greatly by culture. So a personal anecdote, uh, there were two scientists that uh, worked at my formal, former company that never got along. Uh, one was French and the other was Japanese. So French culture uh, stereotypically values honesty and bluntness uh, to the point of rudeness. Uh, Japanese culture typically values good manners and sociability. Uh, the Japanese scientist was greatly offended by the French scientist's candor, and the French scientist often felt that the Japanese scientist was never giving him the truth. Now, both were always trying to treat the other according to his own needs and his own expectations, rather than the needs or expectations of the other person. So there was this disconnect and actually caused more disharmony than harmony. But the other problem, and this is something I grapple with uh, quite a bit, is that sometimes this gets twisted in our heads to reflect our expectations of how we're going to be treated. Uh, so if you expect others to be cruel to you, you're more likely to be cruel to other people. And like I said, this is something I've fallen into myself uh, from time to time. Now, what's really interesting is that the, the internet, or uh, social media in particular, is a, a living, growing system, and in many ways it's evolved to combat human nature. Uh, so just as the golden rule is universal across human civilization, there's a similar rule that is common in just about every internet community you might come across. Uh, it was actually first coined by Will Wheaton, who's uh, something of a rock star in nerd culture. He's a former child actor who played Edson, Wesley Crusher, in Star Trek The Next Generation. So I grew up watching him on TV every week. Uh, and in time since, Wheaton's Law has been adopted as what many refer to as the zeroth law of the internet. And it commands uh, simply, don't be a dick. Uh, pardon my language, but that's the direct quote, and that's how you find it, again, in multiple communities all across the internet. And believe it or not, this is also enshrined in uh, Masonic ritual. And I'm not going to read all of the examples to you, but it's there are many admonitions to be of one mind, to live in peace, um, to be prudent. Uh, it says prudence should be particularly attended to in all strange and mixed companies. And believe me, social media is strange. Um, we have a duty to avoid every irregularity and intemperance, which may be it may impair our faculties. And our master mason charge is actually chock full of admonitions about behaving rationally and kindly to other people around you. Again, taking out the, uh, the component of uh, your expectations on another person and just simply being a good person to everyone else around you. But this, anyway, these simple phrases did not really satisfy me. I was hungering for something more, something a little deeper. Uh, these are 
more of a strategic approach, and I was looking for something a little bit more tactical, some specific applications to human behavior or specific shared values that might carry over from culture to culture or from society to society. And a few years ago, someone shared with me a very interesting anthropology paper, and that was actually the original inspiration for this presentation. Everything else has been cobbled together around it. Uh, the title of the presentation is, Is it Good to Cooperate? Testing the Theory of Morality as Cooperation in 60 Societies. This was published in the Journal of Cultural Anthropology about a year and a half ago, and I am not going to read the paper to you. Uh, it's an academic paper, and that can be a bit dry if you're not interested in that kind of thing. But uh, I'm going to take from the abstract, which summarizes the entire work and actually spoils the ending a bit, so I'm only gonna read half of it to you. It reads, what is morality, and to what extent does it vary around the world? The theory of morality as cooperation argues that morality consists of a collection of biological and cultural solutions to the problems of cooperation recurrent in human, and, or human social life. Morality as cooperation draws on the theory of non-zero-sum games to identify distinct problems of cooperation and their solutions, and it predicts that specific forms of cooperative behavior will be considered morally good wherever they arrive, arise and in all cultures. Now, some of you may be familiar with the concept of zero and non-zero-sum games, and some of you may not. Um, it's related to the concept of a finite or an infinite game. So again, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, the book The Infinite Game by uh, Simon Sinek was uh, published last year. Uh, if you're really interested in the philosophy of management and leadership, uh, you can pick this up on Amazon, it's about 30 bucks, but he also gave a very interesting TED talk uh, on this concept in 2018, so a year before he actually published. And I'd, I'd really recommend taking the 25 minutes to watch that. Uh, and he breaks down this concept into, again, finite games and infinite games. Uh, a finite game is one in which the players are known, the rules are fixed, uh, there's an agreed upon objective that ends the game, and at the end, there's a winner that's declared. Uh, so a good example is football. Uh, we know who the teams are, we know who the players are. The rules are fixed, although we might debate them from time to time. Uh, there's an agreed upon objective. The game definitely comes to a conclusion and one of the team wins and one of the teams loses. And you can compare this to an infinite game where the players are not always known, the rules don't matter, and the game never ends. Uh, the goal of the game is to keep playing, and you lose the game when you're no longer able to play. So an example of that is the NFL. So if people stop watching football, football will cease to exist. Uh, the teams are playing a finite game, but the NFL itself is playing an infinite game. Uh, they have to keep football interesting, interesting enough to keep people watching week to week to week. They're not competing just against other sports, but also other activities or interests that might keep you out of the stands or away from your TV. The NFL itself is playing. They're fighting to stay relevant so that the game will continue. In Freemasonry, the local example I like to use is our traveling awards. So my district covers three counties, and each county has its own traveling award. Uh, during our annual inspection season, lodges traditionally attend each other's inspections. Uh, the lodge that brings the most members to another lodge's inspection takes home the award and brings it to the next inspection. And then the lodge that wins the award the most over the course of the season is recognized at our awards night every summer, and they keep the award until the next inspection season uh, the following winter. Now, in one sense, this is a finite game. Uh, the players are known. Our, our lodges compete very fiercely against each other. Uh, my own lodge was very proud of winning this uh, traveling gavel award year after year after year. Uh, the rules are known. 
uh, but not without controversy. So there have been coin tosses, accusations of sneaking people in to break ties, uh, heated debates over the rules, uh, no actual sabotage yet, as far as I know, but the guys in my district are very resourceful, and I'm sure they could think of something. There's a distinct end to the game, uh, the last inspection of the year, and one distinct winner of each award. But in another sense, the program itself is an infinite game. Uh, the intent behind these programs, uh, whether the lodge realizes it or not, is to encourage people to keep going to inspections. So it gives the brethren something to work towards together, uh, to encourage camaraderie and fellowship, not just within one lodge, but between all of them. Uh, by traveling to other inspections, you see what other lodges are doing right, and maybe what they might be doing wrong. Uh, it helps people learn degree work, especially lectures and charges. So it's one thing to read the text and another to hear it recited again and again with different nuances and performances. Uh, these awards foster a, a happy cooperative atmosphere in our district. Happy active lodges attract new members. In our own way, we're keeping masonry alive in my corner of the state. So the goal of our infinite game is to be able to keep playing uh, far beyond the short-term finite game of winning a traveling award. So that's finite and infinite games, but how does that apply to uh, this concept of zero or non-zero sum games? Uh, now this is a much simpler concept and we're gonna just take a look at some circles. We have a circle that's my interests or my needs, my wants, my desires. And we have another circle which is your interests, your needs, your wants, your desires. And these don't overlap. Our interests are not at all aligning. And if we're in competition, it comes down to you're either in one circle or the other. Either I win, and if I win, that means that you must lose. And that's a, a zero-sum game. One player wins, one player loses. A non-zero-sum game is slightly different. So we still have circles. I still have my interests, and I could still win. And you still have your interests, and you could certainly still lose. But there's also this middle ground. Our interests do overlap, and perhaps they might even align. Uh, maybe there's a middle ground where we both win uh, to a lesser but still acceptable extent. So this is cooperation or compromise or a common good between two people. Now the objective of the paper was to identify what beliefs may be common across human civilization that explore this concept of cooperation or compromise to keep people working together instead of simply killing each other off. Um, so this middle ground where we both win to some extent and no one feels the need to dominate the other person. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's a shared universal ethic. And really that comes back once again to the golden rule. So like I was saying, uh, this comes back again to the golden, golden rule and I'm gonna keep coming back to it. So I, I wanna keep your interests in mind and I hope that you keep my interests in mind and maybe together we can make this world a better place. So how did these researchers actually go about exploring this idea? Well, they surveyed 60 different societies scattered around the world. And it, it may look like these were picked at random, but there's a very specific goal here. Uh, first, these societies have a good amount of data available. Uh, where anthropologists have gone in, studied their cultures, uh, and documented their observations but they're also picked to be adequately spaced apart. Uh, there's a common problem in statistical analysis known as Galton's problem. And that's when, if you pick samples that are too close together, they may not actually be independent. So if I wanna study what people are watching on TV, it's not a good idea to pick people living in the same house because they're probably watching the same things. 
uh, in cultural anthropology, you have to select groups that are spaced far enough apart that they don't influence each other. And uh, when they pick these 60 societies, they pick them to be adequately spaced to avoid that problem. So first, uh, they went into what's known as the Human Relations Area Files, or EHRAF. Uh, this is an online database where all of these anthropological studies over hundreds of years have been uploaded in text form. So they're very easily searchable. Uh, once they got into this database, they found 603 sources, or 603 individual studies spanning over 300 years on these 60 societies. They uh, digested or deconstructed these studies into 3,460 paragraphs, or over 600,000 words, which were then further digested into 962 distinct observations uh, dealing with ethical characteristics of the societies being studied. So one example, uh, reciprocity is observed in every stage of Garo life and has a high place in Garo social structure of values. Uh, very simple sentence. This is just one example of the kind of observation that they would pull out of uh, one of these anthropological studies. Uh, in this case, highlighting reciprocity or again, the golden rule. So, take a guess. How many shared beliefs or shared values do you think we could possibly have in common across the entire world, across all these 60 societies that they were looking at? And I'll give you a hint, it's, it's more than one. I'm not just gonna force feed you the golden rule again and again and again. So we've got a, a chat function, you guys gonna mute yourselves, throw out a number, what do you think? Five. Five, that's a good guess. 20. 20? I'm going to say all of them. All of them? Well, that's, that's cheating. That's like $1, Bob. Worshipful, you, you are the closest. Uh, they found seven. And I'd love to tell you that they perfectly aligned with the three great tenants and the four cardinal virtues, but you know, we're not that good. Uh, we're actually pretty close, though. And I'm going to go through these one at a time. The first is helping family members being a loving mother, being a protective father, helping a brother out, a biological brother, not necessarily a large brother, caring for a frail relative, passing on property to your offspring, so caring for the next generation, avenging the death of a relative, a little more exciting, siding with your family in a dispute, giving preferential treatment to your family, being responsible for what a, fam a member of your family does. So an example being, the moral values reinforced during traditional Ampara adolescence include the importance of loyalty to kin. And surprise, surprise, you will find this in our own ritual. So again, this is Ohio ritual, maybe yours is uh, close enough. You enter a friend's church, although your frequent attendance at our meetings is earnestly solicited. Yet it is not intended that masonry should interfere with your necessary vocations, as these are on no account to be neglected. Now, at least in Ohio, we interpret necessary vocations not just being your job, but your obligations to your family. Uh, likewise, the lesson of the 24-inch gauge teaches us to divide our time and extrapolating from that to prevent your job or even our dedication to masonry from harming our families. Uh, it's further expanded in the Enterprise lecture that by the exercise of brotherly love, we are taught to regard the whole human species as one family, the high, the low, the rich, the poor, who is created by one almighty parent and inhabitants of the same planet are to aid, support, and protect each other. On this principle, Freemasonry unites men of every country's second opinion and conciliates true friendship among those who might otherwise have remained at a perpetual distance. So stretching a little bit beyond a biological family, and you're starting to see echoes of that very first section of the ancient charges. But this is a little bit more difficult to practice. It's a very lofty ideal 
Uh, but it's almost impossible for me to treat everyone as if they're my own family. But we try anyway. But it also leads into the next shared value, helping group members. So your village, your religious community, your ethnic group, maybe your country, working together as a team, coordinating your behavior with others, forming and maintaining friendships, alliances, and coalitions, adopting local conventions, joining in with group activities and events, siding with your group in a dispute, giving preferential treatment to your group, uh, as opposed to giving prefer preferential treatment to your family, promoting group harmony, unity, or solidarity, being responsible for what a member of your group does, going to war to defend your group, again, a little, little excitement, and again, shows up in our ritual. So in our Enterprise lecture, to relieve the distress is a duty incumbent on all men, but particularly on Freemasons, who are linked together by an indissoluble chain of sincere affection. On this basis, we form our friendships and establish our connections. And this pretty much describes Freemasonry in general. In the Master Mason degree, we're charged to whisper good counsel in the ear of a brother and warn him of approaching danger. Uh, there are many anecdotes and apocryphal stories of the grand hailing sign or the sign of distress saving the lives of Masons on the battlefield. A great lofty examples of Freemasonry in action. Freemasonry uh, understandably comes into the, uh, the next shared value, engaging in reciprocal cooperation, trusting someone, returning a favor, paying a debt, fulfilling a contract or fulfilling an obligation. Seeking compensation for industry, which is an interesting example. So if, if I hurt you, uh, it'd be uh, reciprocal to compensate you for that hurt. If you hurt me, it'd be reciprocal for you, for you to compensate me. Feeling guilt for failing to reciprocate, for failing to live up to those expectations. Making amends for cheating. Forgiving people when they apologize, which is again something that I struggle with sometimes. Uh, so as an example from this, again, uh, kind of referencing the Garrow people uh, mentioned earlier, it also shows up in our Master Mason lecture. Yeah, it might have pleased the great creator of heaven and earth to have made man independent of all other beings. But as dependence is one of the strongest bonds of society, mankind were made dependent on each other for protection and security is they thereby enjoy better opportunities of fulfilling the duties of reciprocal love and friendship. Thus was man formed for social and active life, the noblest part of the work of God. Next, being brave. Being strong, strong, tough, able to withstand pain and discomfort. Being courageous or heroic, especially in battle putting yourself at risk to help others, being ready, willing, and able to take on challenges. An example being those who cling to warrior virtues are still highly respected among the Maasai. The uncompromising ideal of supreme warriorhood involves a seat of commitment to self-sacrifice in the heat of battle as a supreme display of courageous loyalty. And in the end of the apprentice lecture, fortitude is that noble and steady purpose of the mind, whereby we are enabled to undergo pain, peril, or danger when deemed expedient. This virtue is equally distant from rashness and cowardice. Moving on, respecting superiors. Being differential, respectful, loyal, or obedient to those above you in the hierarchy. Using appropriate forms of address and etiquette, so referring to people by their appropriate Masonic titles, or simply referring to each other as brother to show respect. Showing respect for parents and older members of society. Being duly respectful of peers and rivals. For the Master Masons Church, to preserve unsullied, the reputation of the fraternity ought to be your constant care. It therefore becomes your province to caution the inexperience against the breach of fidelity, 
to recommend to your inferiors in rank or office obedience and submission. To your equals, courtesy and affability. To your superiors, kindness and condescension. Or in the, uh, the charge to the brethren from Ohio's annual installation of officers. Such is the nature of our constitution that as some must of necessity rule and teach, so others must of course learn to submit and obey. Humility in both is an essential duty. The officers who are elected to govern your lodge are sufficiently conversant with the rules of proprietary, propriety and the laws of the institution to avoid exceeding the powers with which they are entrusted. And you are of too generous dispositions to envy their preferment. I therefore trust you will have but one aim, to please each other and unite in the grand design of being happy and communicating happiness. Next is sharing resources. Dividing a disputed resource rather than fighting over it. Dividing the spoils of a collective enterprise equally, impartially, or according to effort or contribution, as opposed to showing favoritism. Being willing to negotiate, compromise, or come to an agreement. Meeting in the middle, for example, when resolving territorial border disputes. Example being the Kapaku idea of justice is called Uta Uta or half path, again, uh, the concept of reciprocity or meeting in the middle. And in masonry, especially in the Master Mason degree, we're taught that no contention should exist among us, save that noble contention or rather emulation of who best can work and best agree. Finally, respecting others' property. Respecting others' property, possessions, or territory. Not thieving, stealing, robbing, or at least from your group. Uh, sometimes there are examples where this would be acceptable to, uh, to steal against other groups. Not damaging others' property or using it without permission. Not trespassing. Respecting others' homes and personal space. So respect for the property of others is the keystone of all interpersonal relations among the Terahumara. And again, in the Master Mason degree, we're admonished not to cheat, wrong, or defraud one another. Now this all rings true in societies across the globe, across both sides of the political aisle. A very famous quote by President John F. Kennedy when he was addressing a joint session of the Canadian Parliament in 1961. He said, geography has made us neighbors, history has made us friends, economics has made us partners, and necessity has made us allies. Those whom nature hath so joined together, let no man put asunder. What unites us is far greater than what divides us. And this also applies between the many different races, religions, creeds, and jurisdictions within the fraternity that we all share today. Hopefully, by keeping these universal values in mind, future generations will continue to play this great infinite game of ours for many, many years to come. And that is the end of the presentation. So with that, I think we've got probably another 20 minutes or so before Zoom kicks us out again. So first and foremost, thank you very much for staying up and uh, staying late to, to give us this presentation. I know it's uh, 10, about 10, 20 year time now. Um, I found it extremely interesting. Uh, oh yeah, Richard's out in Missouri. It's nine, no, you're, it's 919 where you are. I know Richard, it's past your bedtime. So, um, but it's funny, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, as we kind of went through the do unto others and the variations on that was, you know, it's almost like do unto them, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Because as you said, you know, with your example of the Japanese and the French scientists, you know, they're each doing what they would want to have done, but that wasn't what the other person wanted. So I think there comes an aspect of finding out that, you know, I'm not the most extroverted guy in the world. And and so somebody who is and thinks I want to sit and chat all day long, it's kind of like, you know, doesn't realize that's not me. That's not what I want. Yeah. Um, yeah and then, uh, 
in my case, a struggle sometimes of uh, realizing that when when people are treating me in ways that I uh, I don't appreciate, that maybe they don't mean anything by it. Maybe that's just how they approach things respectfully. Uh, so I, yeah. it's a struggle sometimes to keep an open mind with regards to that, that uh, how I'm being treated is not necessarily a, a negative thing. Uh, maybe I just need to keep the needs of others in mind as well. Yep. I, I remember my first trip to China standing in line for something and basically there is no such thing as personal space. And I was actually being pushed by a lady because when a gap would open up in front of me, I wouldn't step immediately up and she would push me like, you know, fill the gap, fill the gap, you know? And for a second I was kind of like, what the heck's your problem? Then I realized, you know, it's not my culture, not my thing. Just go with the flow, man. <laughs> so does anybody have any questions for Worshipful Alexander? Mike's thinking. What, what part of Ohio are you in? I am, uh, it's a little town called Bedford. It's a southeastern suburb of Cleveland. Uh, so if you don't know Ohio geography, don't worry. I, I will really not take it personally. Uh, I, I was in Toledo. Sorry to interject. That's why. Oh, very good. Yeah, my, uh, my dad's side of the family is from uh, just outside the Toledo area. I, I have many friends in Cleveland, and I work for NCR in Dayton, Ohio, too. Very good. Oh, always good to meet a, a fellow Ohioan. Yeah. <laughs> and California the last 20 years. I love California, but, but uh, still Ohio is the best. Well, I, I think Ohio's leading expert is other Ohioans, so I, it's perfectly understandable. Yeah. Siobhan's part of our inner or United Nations of Buena Park here. That's right. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, anybody else? Well, somebody's got to have a question. I would like to get a, 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 I see you're recording this. I'm hoping you have a, a, a non-crash version, a non-interrupted version. Uh, is that possible? Well, first of all, Zoom, the way I have it set up, it automatically records. The Worshipful Alexander, I hadn't asked you, would you be okay if I recorded this, if we released this as a podcast? We don't charge, we take no money, we just do it just for Masonic education. Yeah, that's perfectly fine with me. Okay, cool. I'll give it to our uh, district inspector since he is our technological music and sound guru. I'll give him the two audio files and then he'll be able to put it together miraculously and make it perfect. So that's cool. Okay, I, I, obviously, we'll have to make sure that, uh, that it's uh, user-friendly, so to speak, for, for the public. Yep. Yeah, again, uh, that... Uh, I guess depends entirely on your jurisdiction. So, um, in uh, in Ohio, anything in our oh, go ahead and show you. Like many jurisdictions, we've got a little monitor or code book, and basically the rule is that anything that's in plain text in the book is fair game. Anything that's actually in cipher, you can't go near. Uh, so yeah. I made sure that everything in this presentation, at least as far as Ohio goes, is is fit for consumption. I believe all those passages are in England, are are uh, monitorial in uh, California as well. Oh, very good. Yeah, if you need to splice something out, don't worry about it. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Right. Yeah, and I, that's the term terminology we use out here is monitorial. It's it's in it's in regular old English, whether it's in the cipher or it's in the officer's monitor, and then then it's fair game. Yep. Amazing how. Um, how close the language is. Yeah. But even after all these years, we've only diverged by a word here or there that, uh, that most of that text was very recognizable. And you probably, if, if you saw our photos, you'd see some lips moving along with the, <laughs> as you're Yeah, I, I kind of figured as much. As long as I'm not walking across the border into Pennsylvania, I can usually keep track of uh, where I'm at in the ritual. Once I cross into PA, all bets are off. See, it's funny. I, I lived in Texas for a little while. And, you know, so California is free and accepted and Texas is ancient free and accepted. And I got to a point where I'd be trying to kind of follow along with ritual and I just gave up. And to me, it was kind of like watching a remake of a movie that you know and love and you realize it's, it's the same story. The characters are a little different and the scene, you know, the scenes are in a little different order. Same basic story, though. You know, and it hit a point where I just had to sit back and relax and enjoy it. Stop trying to follow along. It wasn't going to work. 
Yeah, so my uh, my home lodge up here is a uh, it's kind of a transplant community. People come into the community, they stay for three to five years, and then they move out. So we've had a lot of senior deacons, a lot of junior wardens, but then they hit that three to five year mark. We don't have as many senior wardens or worshipful masters. Um, so one year we had a a fellow come up from Tennessee. Uh, he had been senior deacon in Tennessee. He wanted to jump right back into senior deacon in Ohio. That's great. We needed a senior deacon. Fantastic. We put him in. Uh, first night we had a practice to go over the ritual. He opened his mouth and whatever came out, I'm sure was letter perfect Tennessee ritual, but we didn't recognize hardly any of it. So there was a, a strong campaign of uh, re-education going on trying to get him uh, to spit out the Tennessee and learn the Ohio. But once you learn something, it's really hard to go back. Yeah, there was a, um, I think he was the senior deacon at the time. Probably several of you guys probably remember Brandon Cook when he was the senior deacon over at Anaheim and he was from Boston, I think it was. Yeah, and he did the Boston, they, they gave him like a special dispensation to do the staircase lecture, but from the Boston version. And that was pretty entertaining. Like I said, it was, you know, you knew the story, but it was just different enough to make it kind of like, huh, okay, that's different. Uh, well, anybody else? Worshipful, do you have any questions of us? How often do you get to hang out with people from California? Uh, actually, this is my first time uh, since this whole COVID-19 pandemic struck. I've actually gotten to travel a lot more. I've, I've sat in lodges in Virginia, South Carolina, Tennessee, um, which all over the place on the uh, the East Coast. Um, I had a chance to present for the New Mexico Masonic Con uh, a few weeks ago, but this is my first time with a California lodge, so I'm, I'm marking that off my map. All right. Now, awesome. So looking around our, our guest tonight, so Worshipful Mike Obstig is our incoming secretary, he's past master. Shivam is our chaplain. Dan is one of our brothers. He's not an officer yet. We may get him in there before too long. Worshipful Richard is, our, is a past master and is our treasurer. Omar is, uh, what are you now, your junior deacon? Senior, senior steward, senior steward. And Worshipful Jenkins is our junior, no, he's our senior deacon this year. He's also a past master. Brooks is one of our members. He's our traveling man. He's all over the place. And then Don Lauber that was on earlier, I think he's also a past master. So we got a lot of, a lot of guys. Oh, no, Don's not a past master. Okay. Past secretary, something like that. Temple board. I know he was on temple board for a while. Very active with a temple association. There you go. So we, and there's Very a lot of, we got a lot of new guys on here and we got some guys that have been around a while. So we got a good mix. Oh, it's always great to see. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.